take charge of your places.
that was the time they were waiting. So right now we're looking at a time span of about 35 years of, uh, of uh, what I ain't saying that Isaac was 35 years old here. I'm saying between the, the end of Genesis 21 and the beginning of Genesis 23. So you, we need to keep that in mind. Unfortunately, we see a lot of a lot of uh, uh, coloring books and a lot of cartoons that have Isaac as this wee little little boy. Isaac was not a wee little boy when this happened. Isaac was very, uh, very possibly in his late teens and possibly even into his uh, early 20s when this happened. So and we'll see that here in just a minute, uh, a few more verses in. But it says, It came to pass after these things that God did tempt Abraham and said unto him, Abraham, he said, Behold, here I am. And he said, Take now thy son, thine only son Isaac, whom thou lovest, and get thee into the land of Moriah, and offer him there for a burnt offering upon the upon one of the mountains, which I will tell thee of. Take now thy son. Now, uh, we all know from the Genesis account, Ishmael was the first first son. However, he was not born of uh, born the way that God wanted him to be born. He wasn't the promised seed. Ishmael was not. Isaac was the promised seed. Isaac is the one that was to, uh, that the, the blessing was to, to come from, the blessing that God promised to Abraham, uh, that, that through him all nations of the world would be blessed, uh, that, that he would multiply this seed as the sand of the sea and as the stars of the heaven. Uh, these things were to come from Isaac. So God tells him, he says, you take your son, your only son, and you take him to a mountain in the land of Moriah, and you offer him up there to me. He says, your son whom thou lovest. What's so insignificant about that? This is the first time in scripture that the word love is used. And it's not used as a mother's love toward her children. It's not used as a pastor's love toward his flock. It's not used as a child's love toward their parents. It's used as a father's love toward his son. Not only his son, it's used as as a, a father's love towards his only begotten son. Mm -hmm. So we need to keep that in mind as, as we're reading this scripture. This is, there's, a, there's a lot of allusion to the Old Testament here. There's a, a, a lot of foreshadowing, or, or to the New Testament, I'm sorry, a lot of foreshadowing to the New Testament here. So he says, take your son, your only son, and offer him up as a birth offering, folks. Do you read in the book of Leviticus what a burnt offering was? Jesus Christ was a burnt offering that was offered up unto God. And he's telling, and God is telling Abraham here uh, to take his only begotten son, whom, your son whom thou lovest. And that's the thing, that's one of the things that had gone on in Genesis 21. Isaac was born, he, was, he had grown into a young boy, grown into an adolescent, went on up in his years, and Abraham was tickled to death. Sarah was tickled to death with everything that was going on. In fact, it had been quite some time since God had spoken directly to Abraham as far as the scriptural account goes. It had been quite some time uh, since that had happened. Then all of a sudden, God, when he does decide to speak to Abraham again, what's he do? He tells him to go offer up his son as, a, as an off offering unto him, a burnt offering. So... Uh, verse 3, and Abraham rose up early in the morning and sat on his ass and took two of his, son, two of his young men with him, and Isaac his son, 
and clave the wood for the burnt offering, and rose up and went unto the place of which God had told him. I don't read anything about hesitation here. I don't read anything about Abraham trying to reason with God. I don't read anything about Abraham saying, well, give me a week, or give me a few days, or give me a month. We'll get around to it. It says, early in the morning, he rose up, and he saddled his own ass, and he got the stuff for the sacrifice ready, he got his son ready, and they headed out. Now, in verse 2, we read about where they were going to, because uh, uh, it says here at the end of verse 3, and went unto the place of which God had told him. Where did God tell him to go? He went to Moriah. What was so significant about Moriah? You only find Mount Moriah mentioned twice in the scripture. You find it mentioned here, you find it mentioned in the books of Chronicles. One time. What's so significant about it? This is the place where Solomon's temple was built. Many, many years after this happened here. God sent him to the same area. I ain't going to say it was the exact same peak or the same plateau or anything along those lines. But it was the same area. I have no reason to believe otherwise. I don't know why God would do something like that. Now, all that being said... Some people will say that Mount Moriah also is equal with Mount Calvary. Me personally, I don't think so. I'll let you all decide that on your own. But there were substitutionary sacrifices offered up on Mount Moriah. We're about to read about one of them right here in the form of a lamb that was or a ram that was caught in a thicket. And we know Solomon's temple was built there uh, as per the Old Testament scriptures. And there are many, many, many sacrifices that were made there but those were all substitutionary yes jesus christ's death was substitutionary yes but all those deaths of all those innocent animals were to point toward the sacrifice that would take place in jesus christ uh, two thousand or so years ago when that happened so me personally i don't believe that moriah is equal with calvary same same little uh, same little chain of limestone hills there in Jerusalem. Same, same little chain of mountains there, yes. But I don't believe uh, personally that Calvary is equal with Moriah. But I said, I'll let you all look into that. You can develop your own opinions on it. But regardless, Abraham uh, didn't hesitate. He got up and he went where he was, or headed off to where he was supposed to go. Verse 4, then on the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place afar off. What had God told Abraham to do? He told him to take his only son that he loved and take him and offer him up for a sacrifice. This here says, on the third day he lifted up his eyes and he saw the place afar off. Folks, that tells, that tells me that for three days in Abraham's mind, Isaac was already dead. He knew what he was going to that mountain to do. He knew what he was going to do, and yet he, he trudged on. He didn't hesitate. He didn't hesitate one bit. For three days, he left. Three days in his mind, Isaac was already dead. And don't you think Isaac wasn't wondering about things while they were making this way? Like I said, he wasn't a little boy that couldn't really think for himself at this point. In fact, uh, we'll just read on. And Abraham said unto his young, young men, Abide ye here with the ass, and I and the lad will go up yonder and worship, and come again, and, uh, come again to you. 
And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it upon Isaac his son. He took a fire in his hand and a knife. And they went both of them together. And Isaac spake unto Abraham his father and said, My father. And he said, Here am I, my son. And he said, Behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Don't you think Isaac wasn't wondering about that all the way to Moriah? Don't you think for a second that he wasn't wondering about that offering, about that sacrifice? But here, uh, uh, back in verse 5, when Abraham tell, uh, tells his young men, he says, Abide ye here with the ass, and I and the lad will go yonder and worship, and come again unto you. And the word for young men and the word for lad is the exact same Hebrew word called the heir. The exact same Hebrew word. So when we picture young men, servants of Abraham's, what do we picture? We picture young men. We picture, uh, we picture young, strong, able-bodied men that are able to do the servile work. They're able to, to labor for Abraham. They're able to uh, you know, carry the goods and all these other things. Now it says that Abraham saddled up his own ass here in the scripture. We don't see nothing about these young men doing that. They've been traveling for three days. And I don't see anything about them riding an animal. Folks, Abraham was well over 100 years old at this point. I can understand why he'd want to ride a donkey that far. I wouldn't want to walk that far right now. And I ain't nowhere near his age that he was when this happened. But these young men were able to do that. But young man and lad are the exact same Hebrew words. So that tells me that if these young men, if we picture them as just what we do, young men, late teens, early 20s, we should probably also be picturing Isaac in, as the same, in the same manner, the same way. I said Sarah was 90 years old when he was born. She was 127 when, uh, or when she died. That makes Isaac 37 years old when she died. So we need to keep all these things into consideration. And I said Genesis 23, 1 begins with the death of Sarah. So within within this, we've got about 35 or so years. Keep, keep all that in mind so that, so that you can get this picture out of your head of this little boy that, that can't think for himself, can't do for himself, and is dependent on daddy for everything. Says Abraham took the wound of the burnt offering, laid it upon Isaac his son, and he took the fire in his hand and knife, and they went both of them together. It's verse 6. They went both of them together. I think that the Holy Spirit inspired Moses to write this in such a way just to show that Isaac was giving no fight to Abraham. Isaac wasn't questioning Abraham at this point. Granted, the very next verse he says, Where, where's the offering at? Where's the lamb? Where's, uh, where's the blood sacrifice at? He does ask that question in the next verse. But it says they went off together. Even though I, I personally think that Isaac would have had some questions. Uh, and Isaac had developed some questions on their way to Moriah. Why are we doing this? Why are we going, uh, going all this way? Says, and Abraham said, uh, uh, my son, God will provide himself uh, a lamb for a burnt offering. So they went both of them together. They went both of them together. No fight, no arguing. Just Abraham explaining how good God is. Abraham explaining how God is all-sufficient. God is self-sufficient. And if God wants a sacrifice, God will provide that sacrifice uh, for his people. 
to make to him. Now, did Abraham really and truly have intentions of killing his son? That's, that's the question that, that has loomed over the church for 2,000 years now. Was Abraham really and truly going to kill his son? Yeah, he was. Yes. I mean, I, I give it an emphatic yes. He was. In fact, the book of Hebrews will confirm that to us. It says that Abraham, knowing that God was able to raise up the dead, was going to offer up Isaac as a sacrifice unto God. He had told the men here, he said, me and the lad are going to go yonder. We're going to go to worship God, but he and I will return. He didn't tell them how he was going to worship God. Folks, what is worship? We see worship as coming in and hearing a sermon. That's a form of worship, yes. We see worship as singing songs. That's a form of worship, yes. But pure worship unto God. They say pure religion. James gives us that definition. Pure worship to God is simply obeying God. Amen. When God tells us to do something, when we read something in God's word that we are supposed to do, how we are supposed to act, or anything along those lines, and we obey the word of God, that is worshiping God. Abraham said, we're going yonder to the mountain. We've traveled these three days. I know you boys are tired speaking to his servants, speaking to those young men. I know that you're weary from the journey, but you just hang out here just a little while longer. And the lad and I are going to go up yonder into the mountain, and we're going to worship. Yeah. Abraham knew what worship was. He knew that was obedience to God. Yeah. That is the purest form of worship that we can give God. I love to hear a good sermon. And I love to sing the songs of Zion. And I love to read the scripture. I'll raise my hands once in a while and give an amen, maybe even shout a hallelujah while I'm in the congregation. <coughs> Pure worship is obedience to God. Yeah. Obedience to what God tells us. Abraham was going to obey God. He was going to the mountain to obey what God had commanded of him. He was going to worship. They went both of them together. Verse 9. And they came to the place which God had told him of. And Abraham built an altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar upon the wood. And Abraham stretched forth his hand and took the knife to slay his son. And the angel of the Lord called, called unto him out of heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, Here am I. And he said, Lay not thine hand upon the lad, neither do thou anything unto him. For now I know that thou fearest God, seeing thou, thou hast not withheld thy son, thine only son, from me. So they go up into the mountain. Abraham lays the wood down, sets everything in order for this sacrifice. It says that he finds Isaac. I don't think there's any question in Isaac's mind at that point what Abraham's intentions were. If he had any doubts, they, they, would, have been, they would have been cast far off at that point. But I don't see him struggling. I read nothing about... And listen, like I've already said, Isaac was a young man at this point, late teens, early 20s. The, the latest would have probably been mid-20s. Here's Abraham... Over a century old, don't you think Isaac could have overpowered him if he would have wanted to? I believe he could have. I believe I believe he could have took took his father down and headed on down the mountain and went anywhere he wanted to go just to get away from that situation. But again, I see obedience here. This is obedience 
from the Son to the Father. And that was the meat of Jesus Christ. That's what Jesus Christ told them uh, in John chapter 4. The rest of the disciples, or the disciples had gone into town to get, them, get themselves something to eat. Jesus met up with a woman at the well there in John chapter 4. And we all know that account. We all know what happened. And when the disciples come back, what did Jesus tell them? He said, my meat is to do the will of him that sent me. His meat was to obey the Father. And here's I obeying the Father. Here's the Son obeying the Father here in the Scripture. Uh, the angel, uh, the angel spoke unto Abraham uh, in verse twelve again. Says, I, uh, "I know now that thou fearest God, seeing thou hast not withheld thy son, thy son, thine only son, from who? From me, folks. Abraham didn't go up into the mountain to offer up his son a burnt offering unto an angel. He went to offer him up to God." And this angel says, you haven't withheld your only son from me. That tells me this angel that Abraham saw was the Lord. He was the Lord, yeah. speaking directly to Abraham. An angel would have no right to say these things. Angels don't command worship. Angels don't want worship. Uh, 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 angels were made for the specific purpose of worshiping Almighty God, not to be worshipped. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him a ram caught in the thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered him up for a burnt offering in the, in the stead of his son. And Abraham called the name of that place Jehovah-Jireh, as it is said to this day in the mount of the Lord, it shall, it shall be seen. So here we have the substitutionary sacrifice, the real sacrifice Abraham bound laid down there on the altar and went so far as to raise the knife up above his head as far as we can tell in the scripture and the angel of the Lord spoke to him but then the substitute came in folks you and I under the curse of the law which was given in this same book that we're reading from this morning the book of Genesis I know the law was given in Exodus but the curse was given in the book of Genesis God cursed the earth he cursed mankind. He cursed the animals. He cursed everything. Why? Because of sin. Because of sin, God cursed everything. That's why the New Testament tells us that the earth groans for a rebirth. Not, not just, not just uh, you know, mankind. I mean, folks, you see people out here all the time. We see lost folks. We've got them in our families. We've got co-workers. We were, uh, I mean, just lost people everywhere. And they're looking somewhere for something. They've got a void inside themselves that they're trying to fill. They might try it with a bottle of pills. They might try it with a joint. They might try it with a bottle of alcohol. They might try it with men, with women, whatever they can. But there is nothing that can fill that void except for the very one that put that void in them, which is Almighty God. That's the only thing that can fill that hole in their life. I was in that boat, and if you're honest with yourself, you was in that boat too. You tried everything that the world had to offer before you ever came to God. Now, some people, I understand, are saved eight, nine, ten years old, and God bless them, folks. That's great. And, you know, I wish I would have got saved when I was that young, but I didn't. I had a hole, and I tried to fill it. I tried to fill it with the things of the world. 
But God finally filled that void in my life Amen. one day. God filled a void here that, that hadn't really even taken place yet physically. And as I said several verses ago, in Abraham's mind, there was already a void there. There was already a void thinking, I'm about to kill my son. I'm about to offer him up to the Lord. And there was all kinds of arguments that Abraham could have made. Abraham could have said, Lord, you promised this boy to me. You promised him to me and Sarah back when we were still Abram and Sarah. There's all kinds of arguments that he could have made, but he was simply obedient. Although they had traveled for three days, and that boy, I'm sure, was in Abraham's mind. God fills that <laughs> void here. God fills that void. And people will say, well, the Bible here says that God tempted Abraham, and it did. He tested him. He tried him. God don't just save you and then let you go on your way. He don't do that with any of us. God does test our faith. Now, he wasn't tempting Abraham to sin when he asked him to kill, up, uh, kill his son. He was testing his faith. He was testing his faith in him. Now, the, the surrounding nations... At this time and all throughout the Old Testament, the surrounding nations practiced child sacrifice. We find that in history. We find it in the Bible. We find, we find it all kinds of places. People offered up their children uh, under the god Moloch. They, uh, they offered up their children uh, in selfish manners, but they thought that they were doing good in doing so. But we know from Scripture that God does not approve of human sacrifice. We, uh, we know that very well in Scripture. I mean, if God's in the, in the very Ten Commandments, the moral code that God gave us to live by, and it says, thou shalt not kill, that tells me that, you know, I shouldn't kill you, you shouldn't kill me, I shouldn't kill my children, or your children. God makes it very plain in the Scripture that, that he has a disdain for human sacrifice. So, if he had a disdain for it in the book of Exodus, and God says, I am the Lord, and I change not in the book of Malachi, in Genesis, the preceding book to Exodus, he had the same outlook on it. He had the same outlook as thou shalt not kill. And you shouldn't. Anyway, we'll, we'll continue on. Uh, Abraham called the name of that place Jehovah Jireh, as it is said to this day in the mount of the Lord, it shall be seen. That is one interpretation or translation of the Hebrew text that this was originally written in, is that in the mount of the Lord it shall be seen. The other uh, translation is in the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. Jehovah Jireh being the provider. And God does provide. And there's Hebrew scholars that for years have argued over the placement of a couple of vowels in that saying or slogan, however you want to phrase it, as to what the proper translation of it is. Why not just say it both and be done with it? Why argue over it? God is a provider. And in the amount of the Lord it shall be seen. Both, uh, both of them uh, would be correct in my eyes. Me being a New Testament Christian, uh, but, you know, if they want to argue over that, God bless them. I ain't going to get between them. It's silly to argue over stuff like that, though. Verse 18, or I'm sorry, verse 15. And the angel of the Lord called unto Abraham out of heaven the second time and said, By myself have I sworn, saith the Lord, 
For because thou hast done this thing and hast not withheld thy son, thine only son, that in blessing I will bless thee, and in multiplying I will multiply thy seed as the stars of the heaven and as the sand which is upon the seashore. And thy seed shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in thy seed shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because thou hast obeyed my voice. Again, this angel as the scripture puts it, speaking unto Abraham, says, by myself have I sworn, saith the Lord. I said, I believe this angel was a theophany of the Lord. I believe he was, he was the, the, the Lord himself because of the things that he says here, especially in verse 18, he says, because thou hast obeyed my voice. Thou hast obeyed my voice. Thou hast obeyed what I told thee to do. You have truly worshipped me in your obedience to me. We all know that, uh, that we hear it tossed around all the time in churches that obedience is better than sacrifice. And it is. It is. The actual scripture says to obey is better than sacrifice, but it means the same thing. We've all heard that multiple times. If you've been in church any amount of time, that obedience is better than sacrifice. And it is. Because obedience is the purest form of worship that we can give to God. What does it mean to fear God? We're supposed to we're supposed to fear God, are we not? Why do we fear Him? Well, it depends on your definition of fear, really. The outside no, I shouldn't say the outside, the unsaved world. The unsaved world more and more and more has zero fear of God. I'll be honest with y'all, a lot of that is the church's fault because the church has lost their fear of God. And the unsaved world says, well, if those people don't fear God, why should I fear God? I mean, I, I remember, uh, you know, Bible school, Sunday school, and church services when I was a kid where, you know, I just I felt like I needed to be saved five different times before I ever got out of the service. It was put in my head that I was a sinner. Lost sinners go to hell, and I didn't want to go to hell. Now, that was one fear of God. Another fear uh, of God is simply reverencing God, reverencing who he is. That's the fear that the church has lost. That's the, the church has lost the idea of who God really is. They've lost the thought that he's the very speaker into existence of the entire universe. They've lost the thought that he is able to crush us at any point that he so desires. He is God, and the church has lost that sight of God. They have lost that thought of God, and therefore it has bled out into the world, and the world says if the church, if the people of God don't fear him, I have nothing to fear. And that's where they've gotten this idea. And Missy and I were actually talking about this on the way to church this morning. That's where they've gotten the idea that they can go out and they can do whatever they want. They can live how they want. They can act how they want. And them and God will have some sort of arrangement come judgment day. The only arrangement God has got with humanity is in his son, Jesus Christ. And that is the only arrangement that there is. And in his shed that's the, only, that's the only way out from underneath the condemnation that God placed on the earth and God placed on mankind in this same book that we're reading from this morning. 
I got a little bit off track there, but that's okay. Uh, that, that in blessing I will bless thee, and in multiplying I will multiply thy seed. This isn't the first time this promise has been made to Abraham. But Abraham has just proven to God in, in the test and the trial that God has put him through and the temptation that God's put him through. Like I said, God didn't tempt Abraham to sin. James makes it very plain that God cannot be tempted, neither tempteth he any man. That every man is drawn away of his own lust. Lust within his conceived bringeth forth sin. Sin when it is finished bringeth forth death. So God does not tempt man to sin. Where does that, where does that temptation come from? It comes from inside your chest. It comes from inside my chest. It comes from our own dark desires that nobody else knows about. It comes from our own our own wants and our own passions that we're going to take to our graves with us one of these days. It comes from within. We can't blame the devil. We can't blame anybody on our on, on our lusts, on our sin. We can only blame ourselves on that. We can't blame Adam and Eve. We can only blame ourselves. If we could blame Adam and Eve, then everybody since Adam and Eve should be saved, should be saved right now. If we can point a finger back at them, but we cannot do that. We make our own decisions. You decide. Uh, 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 you decide what you're going to do in your life. You decide whether to go with God or go with the world. And the Bible says that friendship with the world is enmity with God. So, God even told the Israelites that He said, "I, I set before you choices. I set before you life and death. Choose life." He left it up to them to do it. You read that in Deuteronomy. Uh, and in thy seed shall all nations of the earth be blessed because thou hast obeyed my voice. Not because you traveled three days, not because you worked hard, not because you climbed this mountain in your old age, but because you have obeyed my voice. Amen. There's too many church members. I ain't speaking in here. I don't, I don't know you all that well yet, but, but I've seen it. There's too many church members that say, Sell that we have. I'm the Bible school director every year. I teach Sunday school class. I do this and I do that. Folks, that's not worshiping God. That is not worshiping God. Worshiping God is obeying His voice, obeying His word. That is worshiping God. And if you're depending on that, if you're depending on what you do for the church. Uh, for God to chalk that up somehow to you as an act of worship, you're in a sad shape. You obey the word of God, and that is worshiping God. I said it had nothing to do with Abraham's actions, nothing to do with with his journey there. I'm talking individually with uh, with the three days or with the mountain climb or anything like that. It was simply that he obeyed God. If God had told him, stay home, build an altar here, and offer up your son a, a sacrifice, as a sacrifice unto me, and Abraham had listened, it would have been the same amount of worship as those three days' journey, that climb up into the mountain, the same way that he went about it. It would have been the same amount of worship because it would have been obedience unto God. So Abraham returned unto his young men, and they rose up and went together to Beersheba. And Abraham dwelt at, at Beersheba. So Abraham did exactly as he promised that he would do. 
He returned to the young men, and they rose up and went together. We read several verses previous to this that uh, Abraham and Isaac went together. And now that they've gone up into the mount, they've gone up into Moriah, they've worshipped God, they've come back. Now Abraham, his son, and his servants all go together. They go go back to Beersheba. Uh, This ain't the only place Abraham ever built an altar. In fact, he built one in Beersheba as well. He built altars in several different places uh, in reverence to God, to honor God, to sacrifice unto God. But he goes back to Beersheba. He goes back home to do what? To live out the rest of his days. Maybe he was waiting on God to speak to him again. Unfortunately, this is the last scriptural account that we have of God speaking directly to Abraham, directly. But what matters is when God spoke to him. Even though it had been years before, and we've got years afterwards, when God did speak, Abraham listened. Abraham did exactly as, as he should have. Something else I would like to point out before I sit down here. I know people are already coming up. Flash real quick, that's okay. Back in verse 2 again, we talked just a little bit about that word love. Now, the first reference in the scripture is about a father's love towards his only begotten son, Abraham, towards Isaac. Something else, though, that we need to consider is. And I, and I recommend this for all of y'all. When you're studying scripture, if there's a certain word or a certain phrase that you're wanting to know a little bit more about, you go back in the first time in scripture that it's used. You look at the surrounding context, and it should flow like that through the rest of scripture. Most times, 98% of the time it will. So, that being said, we see this word love here in verse 2 of Genesis 22. In the New Testament, we see when we look at the first uses of love in the New Testament in the synoptic gospels Matthew, Mark, and Luke the first use of the word love is God at the baptism of Jesus Christ when he says this is my beloved son and different the different writers have different ways that that was phrased and that's fine that's their account that's not a contradiction in scripture at all that's their account of what happened but every one of them say this is my beloved son Speaking of the Father's love toward the Son, John is the only exception to that. And John is a gospel altogether all, all different. Where's the first use of the word love in the Gospel of John? In John 3.16. For God so loved the world. First three gospels, we see it as the Father's love toward the Son. But in John's gospel, it was God's love toward the world, God's love toward mankind, God's love toward his creation, which tells me that every ounce of love in your life, every act of love that you either give or that you receive, every act of love, period, goes back to God somehow because God is the originator of this thing that we call love. Whether it's by the Father toward the Son or by the Father toward humanity, all of it goes back. The Bible says in 1 John, God is love. I thank God for that too. I understand that, uh, you know, the Bible says we love him because he first loved us. 
and, and I appreciate that too. I thank him that he loved me when I was yet unlovable. I thank him that he loved me when I was still out in sin, not caring about him, going against his ways and against his laws and against his uh, every, everything about God, the church, the church's people, everything. I was rebellious against God, just as you were. You might not feel like you were as rebellious as I was against God and the things of God, but you were. Every one of us were. You wouldn't know better of a sinner than I was. Maybe in man's eyes, maybe in man's eyes you were. You know, just like in man's eyes, a, in man's eyes, a liar's uh, not nearly as bad as a murderer. In God's eyes, it's both sin, and both sins deserve hell. Sin is sin is sin in the eyes of the thrice holy God. It doesn't matter how big or small you think it is. But anyway, I wanted to point that out before I sat down uh, about love in the Old Testament. This is the first use of love in the Old Testament, a father towards a son. In the New Testament, the first three Gospels, a father towards a son. But in the Gospel of John, it's the father towards humanity. It tells me that love goes full circle all the way back to its original. Thank you all for your attention. God bless you.